How many of you brought your Bible with you this morning? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building? Let me ask you, if you will, to join me in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter number 1, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you have an old Schofield Bible, that's page number 1071, and I'll read a verse or two here, a verse or two there, and we're going to look together at this story this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1. And while you're finding your place there, thank you again for coming and being a part of our service today. Now, next Sunday morning, Remember, we're just having a 10 o'clock service next Sunday morning. No Sunday school, no bus running next week. We're just going to kind of let everybody have a time with their family for Christmas. But we're going to have service here at 10 o'clock. So if you'll just come in here in the main auditorium at 10, and then we'll pick back up next Sunday night at 5.30 moving forward as we move into the brand new year. So no Sunday school next week, no buses running, just preaching service next Sunday morning, and then, of course, um, Sunday night as well. And then uh, Wednesday night, I would encourage you to be here. It's, it, that, that service has become one of my favorite services of the entire year as we gather together for the carols by candlelight. And, of course, we've thrown in some uh, uh, extra stuff now to... Uh, to uh, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, just encourage our hearts and our memories of Christmas. And uh, so I want to encourage you. That's at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. You don't want to miss that service. And it's just a good time together. You just come together, kind of exhale a little bit. And hopefully I'll have all my shopping done. How many of y'all got your shopping done? But I hopefully I have mine done by Wednesday night so I can just come and just breathe out a little bit and enjoy a little bit of the service. So I encourage you to be here for that and, of course, the choir service tonight. All right? Luke chapter number 1. If you're there, would you say amen? I want you to look this way, if you will. I was interested to read this week that Christmas is not only a time of peace and a time of joy and a time of hope, but I found out this week that Christmas is also a time of fear. For many people. In fact, I read this week that there are actually several phobias that are connected or associated with the season of Christmas. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce some of these things, but I have put some of these phobias that people have about Christmas up on the screens. Here's one that some people have. It's called, I guess, maybe I could say this one, Sela. Phobia. Now, you may not know what that is, but what that is is uh, it's the fear of flashing lights. The fear of flashing lights. Maybe we have a picture of that we could put up there. Uh, a fear of flashing lights. You know, there are a lot of people uh, that fear flashing lights simply because they suffer from migraines or, uh, you know, uh, seizures sometimes are brought on by these, uh, these flashing lights. So people sometimes are a little bit afraid of the lights of Christmas. Now, this next one, I'm going to tell you, many of us have this, uh, uh, this uh, phobia, and it's not even been diagnosed yet. Let me tell you what it is. First of all, it's that word right there, syngenophobia. Is that right? I'm not sure about that. But what that is, that is the fear of relatives. <laughs> I told you, you had it, didn't even know it. That's right. The fear of relatives, people coming over to your house, strangers you hadn't seen in a year, and here they all come piling in over to your house. Many people suffer from that fear. Here's another one. I'm not even going to even try to pronounce this one, but look at this one. This is actually a word, believe this or not, uh, whatever that is right there. Uh, a lot of people have it, but what that is is the fear of Christmas itself. You know, the gatherings and the food and the presents kind of all rolled into one. Many people suffer from just the fear of Christmas itself. 
And then there's this one right here. Look at this one. It's called Ecclesiast uh, Ecclesiastophobia. Now, Bob, I'll tell you something. There's a lot of people from suffer, that suffer from that fear right there, not only during Christmas, but the entire year. You know what that is? That's the fear of church. There's a lot of saved people through the time of the COVID that's got where they're afraid of church. Not afraid of Walmart. Not afraid of Target. Not afraid of the grocery store. But boy, they sure have become afraid of church, haven't they? But this, during Christmas season, a lot of people get afraid because they know they got to make that yearly trip to church. And then here's another one of these. I don't know if you have this one or not, but it's called acrophobia. Now what that is, that's the fear of somebody on your roof. And we're just going to leave it at that. The fear. Oh, there you go. Yeah. The fear of somebody up on your roof. Now I got to confess, this is my last one, but I made this one up. But I suffer severely from this one right here called fruitcakeophobia. <laughs> When I was growing up, I was made to eat that stuff. Now, now when people give me one, I use it for a doorstop. I suffer severely, severely from fruitcake. How many of y'all are afraid of fruitcakes? Raise your hand. Yeah, all right. How many of y'all got one so far? All right. Now, don't point to the person who gave it to you. I'm not talking. But uh, fruitcakeophobia. A lot of people have many fears during the Christmas season. You know, all kidding aside, as a pastor uh, who has pastored now for 35 years, at, at a, 10 years at another church and 25 at this one, I have approached the Christmas story from almost every angle possible. I have preached on the songs of Christmas, some of my favorite songs of Christmas. I have preached on the movies of Christmas. I went through and named some of my favorite movies and preached uh, about the movies of Christmas. I have preached Christmas in the Old Testament. I have preached Christmas in unusual places. A couple of years ago, I even preached on what I called a Reader's Digest Christmas, just to name a few. So in 35 years, man, I've covered it. I feel like I have, and uh, I've covered it from just about every angle possible. And I struggle, you know, year by year now, trying to come up with a different, and, and I say this reverently, but a different angle on the Christmas story. But I got to confess that I saw something this week that in 35 years of preaching or more that I've never seen before. And that's this. While I was going through the Christmas story, I ran, kept running into a phrase in the Christmas story. And the phrase is this, fear not. I, I mean, as you go through the Christmas story, you're going to bump into that phrase about four different times as you move through the Christmas story. Now, I know people got a lot of fears, fruitcakeophobia. Evidently, they keep leaving that one up there. Evidently, there's a lot of people that's got that one right there. But, uh, you know, we got all kind of fear of lights, fear of somebody on the roof, fear of uh, uh, the relatives coming in, all kind of fear. But God looks at us at Christmas time, and here's what he says You don't have to be afraid. Fear, fear not. So this morning, I want to preach on this thought right here. I want to preach on the three fear nots of Christmas. Now, there are actually four of them, and I'll mention the fourth one in the second one, but I want to just basically stand the Gospel of Luke this morning, and I want to preach on the three separate times in the Christmas story where God said, fear 
not. Now, I got to tell you this. Every time that God used that phrase in the Christmas story, we are introduced about some great attribute of God, something that God does on the behalf of people. Every time God said, hey, fear not, God was saying, all right now, I want to teach you something about me. So let's look at it together. Now, we're starting in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter number 1, and the first fear not is found in verse 13 of Luke chapter number 1. And here what we have in the story is the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, by the way, he's part of the Christmas story because he would be the announcer, the messenger, the, 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 the one who introduced Jesus to the world. And uh, they sang a moment ago that Jesus is the king, and by the way, he is the king, but every king back in those days had an announcer, a forerunner that went before him to announce his coming. Well, uh, as Jesus was getting prepared to come into the world, God already raised up a forerunner in the person of John the Baptist. And he's a part of the Christmas story. And in the, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 13, here's what we read about. And the, but the angel said unto him, the angel said unto Zacharias, fear not. Zacharias. Now, i got to get you to look this way before I continue to read. Let me tell you the story of what's going on here. We're introduced in the, in the opening chapter of verses of, of the Gospel of Luke to this man by the name of Zacharias and his wife, her name was Elizabeth. This man, Zacharias, you know, he was a, he was a priest that was working in the temple there in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we understand that Bible names are important. When somebody is given a name in the Bible, it was not just some haphazard uh, uh, name just thrown at somebody. You know, in our day, we like a name, so we pick that name for our children. But in Bible days, they were given names, specific names, because of certain characteristics that they had in their life. And, and the name Zacharias means this, the man of God. Boy, that's a good name to have, isn't it? Zacharias, the man of God. And his wife, Elizabeth, her name means God is my oath, or God is my promise. Now, that tells us a little bit about these people, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, we have two people here that sincerely, sincerely love the Lord. In fact, if you look back in verse number 6 of this same chapter, Luke chapter number 1, we're told a little bit about this man and his wife because in verse 1, we're told that they were both righteous before God. Now, let me tell you, you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, the word righteous, let's knock the E-O-U-S off of that. And the Bible said that they were both right before God. In other words, they had been declared right by God. They were doing right. They were declared right, righteous before God. Let me put that in today's terminology. That meant they were saved. You know, when you and I get saved, we are declared to be righteous in the sight of God. You're declared to be right. Now, before you get saved, you're wrong. Before you get saved, we're sinners. Before we get saved, we're without Christ, without hope, without God in this world. But once we get saved, we're declared to be right by God. So we're told that they were righteous. Number two, we're told this. They were walking in the commandments of the Lord. In other words, they were doing right. They were not only declared right, but they were now doing right. And by the way, a good thing to do after you get declared right is to start doing right. I tell you, man, our world has seen its share of people who have been declared righteous by God who are not doing right. So 
they were declared right and then they were doing right. They were walking in the commandments of the Lord. For Sight County Translation, they were doing their best to do what the Bible said for them to do. And then the Bible also said there in verse number uh, 6 that they were walking in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. They lived the Bible. And then the Word of God said that they were blameless. Look at verse 6. The Bible said they were walking in the commandments and orders of the Lord and they were blameless. Now that simply means to look at their life, you and I could find nothing whereby we might point an accusing finger at that life and say, boy, this is wrong in your life. Now, by the way, there's a difference between being blameless and sinless. Can I have an amen? Nobody is sinless. Now, we ought to sin less, but nobody is sinless. But thank God we can be blameless. We can live in such a way that nobody can point an accusing finger at our life and say, hey, I saw you at the, at the beer joint last night, or I saw you at the grocery store buying a box of beer or I saw you up there buying that bag of weed on the street corner, or I heard you say this, you know, these people were blameless. Nobody could find anything in their life where they could point an accusing finger. Now, by the way, that's saying a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, here they are. They're declared right. They're doing right. And now we read that they're absolutely blameless. Nobody could find anything to accuse them of. And if that isn't enough, in verse 67 of Luke chapter number 1, we read that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 67, the Bible said that his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. And if that isn't enough, guess what? Not only is daddy full of the Holy Ghost, but his mama was full of, uh, the wife is full of the Holy Ghost as well. Look at verse 41, same chapter. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women. And then it says on down here that uh, she was filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about Elizabeth. Now, if that isn't a picture of what family life ought to be like, I don't know what is. What a picture of a godly family. We got a daddy. We got a mama. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. They've been declared right by God. They're doing their best to do right. They, they, they live in such a way nobody can point an accusing finger at them. By the way, that's the way family life ought to be. I know this is the 21st century, and I know families aren't much like that anymore, but I'm here to tell you that's the way God intended for family life to be. But i got to tell you something. they got a problem. I mean, with all that kind of a right kind of a living going on in their life, I mean, they got a, they got a problem. they got a need in their life. And that need is found back in verse number 7. So look at Luke chapter 1 and verse number 7. And here's what the Bible said. The first five words there, and they had no child. Because the Bible said that Elizabeth was barren. Now we come to understand there's a problem with the wife. Some, for some biological reason, she cannot conceive, she cannot bring forth a child. And no doubt this couple has wanted a child all these years. They have earnestly prayed much for God to give them a child. Maybe some of our precious couples in our church have struggled with that or are struggling with that. One of the things you want in your life desperately, you would like to have a child or maybe you've reached the point now that you are beyond the childbearing years and, and you can't have children. And the one thing that's always troubled your heart is the fact you always wanted to have a child or children, but for some reason you just couldn't do it. And that's the predicament that this godly family was in. Now, by the way, let's stop. Give them their kudos for just a moment. They're still serving God in spite of all the, uh, all the questions they've got to have, in spite of all the disappointments. Guess what? Daddy's still 
Ghost of the house of God every day. Uh, Mama still is full of the Holy Ghost. They still live for God in spite of all the questions and all the disappointments. They made up their mind. They'll have to leave some things with God. They're just going to trust Him and live for Him anyway. Can I give you some good advice? There's going to be a lot of things that's going to happen to you in this walk of life. There's going to be a lot of things there's going to be no answer for. You're going to be disappointed by a whole lot of things that happen to you in this walk of life. But let me give you some good counsel, friend. Just go on and serve God anyway. And that's exactly what this family was doing. Praying much, beseeching God. In fact, we're told now, uh, where does it say that at? Verse number, I don't know, in somewhere in this passage, uh, it said that uh, uh, they were old. No doubt the uh, hands on their biological clock had not just come to a stop. The hands on their biological clock had just fallen off. No doubt, after many, many years of praying, after years and years of weeping and begging God for a child, Maybe they'd just given up now. Maybe they just, maybe that was something they only prayed about occasionally now. But I want you to notice again there in verse number, is it verse number, uh, verse number 13? Here's the first great truth we learn about God from the Christmas story. Look again. Uh, the angel said unto him, verse 13, Fear not, Zacharias. Then what's the rest of it say? Thy prayer is heard. Can I say, number one, the first fear not of Christmas, you know what we find? We find that God responds to prayer. Well, I appreciate Miss Kelly's stance. She didn't even know what I was preaching on this morning, but was God giving me some good confirmation there this morning when she stood up and said after years and years and years of praying for a, a brother that had become estranged to the family, and I, I don't know what the situation behind all that, but she said after years of praying for that, he showed up on, on her doorstep. This, And she just wanted to thank God for answered prayer. Can I just say this morning, aren't you glad that we serve a God that responds to prayer? I mean, it may take years. It may seem like it's never going to happen, but the truth of the matter is, hey, don't be afraid. One of the first lessons we learned in the Christmas story about God is you don't have to be afraid. You know why? Because he is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. He responds to prayer. Now, I kind of got it in my mind this morning. There's a lot of people been sitting in, uh, sitting in this building, and for years you've been praying about some situation in your life. Maybe for years you've been praying for a lost husband to be saved. Maybe for years you've been praying for a lost child or a wayward boy or a wayward girl to come back home. Maybe for years you've been praying for God to do something in your life, this specifically that you've been asking him to do. And for years and years, through all the tears and all the prayer and all the questions and all the disappointments you've been praying and maybe you've reached the point now that you've almost just set it aside and you don't even pray about it anymore. But I just want to tell you, friend, there's a God in heaven that still responds to the prayers of his people. So what we need to do is just keep on praying because we don't have to be afraid. Fear not, thy prayer is heard. And God, after all those years, after all those years, God gave them a bouncing baby boy. Not just any boy. I'm talking about a wild man that eat locusts and wild honey and wore camel hair. I'm talking about an old-fashioned Baptist baptizing preacher God gave them in answer to their prayer. There's nothing too hard for our God to do. Amen. Number one, from the first fear not, I just want to try to encourage you on this Sunday morning before Christmas. Just keep on praying. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid 
by prayer is heard. God responds to prayer. Amen and amen. Fear not, God responds to prayer. There's a second fear not in this story. Now look across the page now, the next side of the page on my, in my Schofield Bible, and we run into a second fear not. Look at verse 30. And the angel said unto her, now, we're a little bit more familiar with this part of the Christmas story because we come now to the Virgin Mary. And we find in our story here, and we're a little bit more familiar about that, a second fear not to the Christmas story. Now we talk about Mary, the little virgin girl who lived in an out-of-the-way place by the name of Nazareth. She was from an ordinary place. She was an ordinary person living in an ordinary place. Nazareth, why, man, you didn't want to be from that. You wouldn't put that at the top of your resume, I'm from Nazareth. No more than I would put at the top of my resume, I'm from toast. I mean, Nazareth was, was nowheresville. I mean, Nazareth was hill country. Nazareth was where the Hicks lived, the Yahoos lived, my kind of people. The rednecks lived in Nazareth. Can I get an amen for rednecks? Amen. I mean, that was for, if you were from Nazareth, you were from nowheresville. And the Bible said out of this very ordinary place, God reached down in an ordinary person's life and God revealed to her that he had some big plans for her life. Aren't you glad you don't have to be a president? You don't have to be a senator? You don't have to be a movie star? You don't have to be some kind of big singer? You don't have to be a millionaire? Hey, you don't have to live in a certain part of town, drive a certain kind of a car? You don't have to make a certain kind of an income? Hey, brother, I'm glad God can use just plain ordinary people from plain old ordinary places. Can I have an amen? I never knew this. I'd, I'd never dreamed this, but 58 years ago today, God reached down in an ordinary place, in an ordinary man and wife, and God gave them an ordinary person, and God said, I got plans for that ordinary boy that's been born into this family. Why don't you call his name Timothy? Because the name Timothy means he's going to try to honor God, and I got big plans for that boy. I'm going to put him in a church down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm going to let him preach the Word of God. I'm going to let him do his best for me. He'll be a voice for me in the last day. God in an ordinary place touched an ordinary person and God said, I got some plans for you. Can I have an amen? I'm glad I didn't know them plans when I was born that day because I'd have probably wanted to hang around the hospital a little bit longer. But God reached down into this place and revealed to her that she would be the vessel, the vehicle that God would use to bring his son into the world. Now, wait a minute. That didn't come without its problems. As simple as that may sound, hey, Mary, I'm going to let you be the mother of my son. By the way, she's not, she's not some kind of a sinless person. If you look there in Luke chapter number 1, notice in verse number 42, it said, Thou art blessed among women and not above women. You notice the word there? Mary is just like you and me. Mary needed the Savior. Amen. Mary's not a way to get to God. Mary's not a mediator between God and man. I heard about a cross over in Rome in a certain Catholic church over there. On one side, they got Jesus on the cross, and on the other side, they got Mary on the cross. You hear me and hear me well. You can pray to Mary all you want to pray to. You can pray to Peter and James and John and the rest of that crowd, but the only name God recognizes when it comes to prayer and the only name that will get you into heaven when life is over is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No other name God recognizes. 
Amen. But God did use her. God blessed her, ordinary person from an ordinary place. And God blessed her and used her to be the vehicle. But that man, that, that presented some problems in her life. So look again at verse number 30 of chapter number 1. Now we understand that God not only responds to prayer, but fear not, God resolves the problems. Fear not, verse 30. Angels said, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. God's going to do something with you. And this opened up a Pandora's box of problems. Number one, there was a biological problem. I mean, the Bible said, she said down in verse 34, how can this be seeing I know not a man? There's a biological problem. God's going to have to jump over the hurdle of biology. If she's going to have a child and she hasn't known a man, and by the way, up to this time in our Bible, people have got their body in three different ways. There's one instance in our Bible where a man got his body without a man or a woman. I'm talking about Adam. There's one instance in our Bible where a person got their body with a man without a woman. I'm talking about Eve. And then there's the way the rest of us got our bodies, and that was by the process of our mother and our father and, and the natural process of that relationship produced us. But ladies and gentlemen, up to this point, there has nobody ever been born of a woman without a man. It's just unheard of. It cannot happen unless you figure God into the equation. And if you look at verse 35, the Bible said the angel uh, answered and said unto her, here's the answer to the problem. The, the answer to the problem is the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Keep that word in your mind, overshadow. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. God was going to do the miraculous. God was going to solve the biological problem. God was going to place within the confines of Mary's womb the Holy Holy Ghost was going to overshadow her. That word is used only one other time in our Bible in such a manner, and that's in the Old Testament in the days of the tabernacle when the Bible said that they brought in the uh, the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant and the and the. The, the Shekinah glory of God overshadowed the holy place. I think what God's telling us is the womb of Mary is going to become, and I say this reverently, but it's going to become a holy place where I'm going to fill it with my glory and God's resolved the biological problem. You understand that? God did that. But then there was also a matrimonial problem. You see, at this time, Mary is espoused to Joseph. In Hebrew marriages are a little bit different or in that culture than they are in our culture today. In our culture, a man goes out, meets a woman. Hopefully, they fall in love and get married. And if it don't work out, six months later, they go find somebody else. But in that culture, the marriage was arranged by the parents. There was an arrangement made. The dads would get together and there would be an arrangement that was made. So the first stage of marriage was the arrangel. Uh, the arrangel. The arrangement. The arrangel. The arrangement. And then after that come the espousal period. Now that usually lasted about a year. And the young couple would get to know each other. Meanwhile, the dad, the, the husband-to-be, was at his father's house preparing a place for his bride to come and live at the father's house. <laughs> Boy, that reminds me of some good verses in John chapter 14. But he was over there preparing, and they would see each other periodically and get to know each other. That was the espousal period. It was just as binding as the marriage itself, and yet they had not come together yet as husband and wife. 
That didn't take place till one year later after the place had been prepared. He would go and the bridegroom would come, get his bride. There'd be a feast, a wedding celebration, and he would take her to be his very own. But the espousal period was just as binding as the marital period was. Now we got a problem. Because here's Joseph and Mary, they're a spouse together. It's legally binding. She uh, gets the news from this angel about she's going to have a child. And according to verse number 39, she runs off to the hill country up there where John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and, uh, and uh, Zacharias is. And when she comes back from the hill country, she's got to tell Joseph, I'm going to have a child. Now I got a question for us men. Your fiance goes off to the hill country and comes back, says she's going to have a child. What's the first thing that's going to hit your mind? First thing that's going to hit my mind is, I'm going to go hit somebody. I'm going to kill somebody in a nice way. How do you kill somebody tonight? I don't know. I'll figure it out. I mean, something ain't adding up here. So now Joseph is in a dilemma, and so we read in Matthew chapter number 1. Watch this now. Matthew chapter 1, her husband Joseph, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to divorce her. You say, but preacher, they're not married. Oh, yes, they're just as legally bound to marriage as if they were already married. So he said, man, she's, she's, she's pregnant. She's been off up there. I have no idea who she's been with. She's got this crazy story that she's trying to tell me about God and the Holy Spirit. And she doesn't know a man, and God did this, and I, 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 I'm going to put her away. I've had enough. I'm putting her away. But in the next verse we read this. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of Mary, uh, son of David. And then here's the fourth one. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible said that Joseph did what God told him to do. Guess what? God not only solved the biological problem, God solved the matrimonial problem. Now look at me. Fear not. We got pride. How many of y'all got problems in here? Somebody once said to me, the only fellow in the whole world has got all of his problems behind him is a school bus driver. We all got problems. Let me say it like this. We all are carrying our own loads. Let me say it like this. We're all pushing our own wagons. We got our own struggles. We got our own conflicts. We got our own battles. We got our own uh, problems, family problems or financial problems or some kind of marital problem. Or, we all got our problems, but fear not. God can solve your problems. Yes, yes, sir. The same God that responds to prayer is the same God that can resolve the problems. But now I save the best for last. So go with me to Luke chapter 2. We got one final fear not. Look at Luke chapter 2 now and look at verse number 10. So Mary and Joseph are now married. Now watch this. God has moved the entire world through a decree, a de a decree by Caesar Augustus because it's, it was prophesied in Micah 5, 2 that Jesus, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem. But they live in Nazareth. So God has a, a king to move an entire world, set the entire world in motion to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. <laughs> Boy, aren't you glad we can trust the Word of God? 
Amen. God will move an entire world if he has to just to fulfill one Bible promise. I have no problem whatsoever believing the promises about the last days and the Antichrist and riding horses out of heaven. I mean, man, if God can do that right there, God can do anything. Can I have an amen? And so here they are, they're there, and boy, she goes into labor now. Oh, she's in labor. And then the Bible said in verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And then we read about how that God dispatched a, a host of heavenly angels. And look at verse 10. And the angel said unto them, to the shepherds that were abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, verse 8, the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now watch this. Fear not, God responds to prayer. Fear not, God resolves the problems. And fear not, God rescues the perishing. God had a message to them lowly shepherds out there. And he did, his message was not, a king has been born. I know it. He is the king. But they didn't need a king at that point. His message was not, a judge has been born. He will be the judge, but that's not what they needed. Their message was, a savior has been born. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of eternity. You and I don't have to be afraid of the grave. We don't have to be afraid of the future. Why? Fear not. A savior has been born. Now, I preached my whole message to get to this one thing, and I'm done. If I were to mention the name of Phillips, Philip Brooks, most of you in here have probably never heard of Philip Brooks. And there's a good reason for that, because he lived back in the 1800s. In fact, he died. Anybody alive back in the 1800s? He died in 1893. And let me tell you what he was. He was an Episcopalian priest. Now, evidently, they preached something back in those days because, bless God, I wouldn't walk across the street to hear an Episcopalian preach in our day. Can't I have an amen? In fact, we got a nickname for them, Whiskapalians. Can I get a... a, a we're in a Baptist church. I suspected a few amens right there. He was an Episcopalian priest. Really, he's only famous for one thing, and that's a song he wrote. And we sing it about this time every year. And the title of his song was, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And we sing that song, uh, you know, during this time of the year. Evidently, he was a saved man. But as I was reading this week about him, to me, he made the greatest, most profound, yet the simplest definition of Christmas that I've ever read. So here is his definition of what Christmas really is. Christmas is when God came down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. Is that not what Christmas is? God came down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. You're sitting here today and you say, Preacher, I got so many problems. I, I've made such a mess out of my life. Preacher, I don't know if I could ever straighten this mess out, if I could ever get back on track. Watch this. God came down the stairs of heaven 
with a baby in his arms to say to you, there's hope. It can be fixed. Your life is not so bad, so messed up that I can't fix it. I got a baby in my arms just for you. Maybe somebody's sitting here today and you say, Preacher, you, t you tell me about God. I don't even think nobody loves me. I mean, Preacher, I've turned this one against me and I've had such a terrible attitude. That one's against me and nobody. I don't even think nobody loves me. God came down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms just to say to us, I love you. I care about you. I want you. I want you in my family. I want us to have fellowship. I want you to come live with me one day in heaven forever and ever and ever. And the proof of it was God came down the stairs with a baby. Isn't that, isn't that the definition of what Christmas really is? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's great. Uh, uh, what a great definition of Christmas. But as far as humanity goes, I've read nothing better than God came down the stairs of heaven holding a baby in His arms. That is proof positive that God loves you. God cares about you. God wants you. God desires you to live in His presence. And He came down the stairs with a baby in His arms. And that's what Christmas is all about. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father.